welcome to The Driving Podcast. I'm your host, Lorraine Sommerfeld. I'm splitting this podcast into two sections to address what Canada is about to enter, the winter driving season. In the first half, we're going to talk about how you should prepare your vehicle. As our earth changes daily and flips from extreme seemingly overnight, your car has to be ready, not just for your safety and well-being, always critical, but for the well-being of your car. In the second half, of the show, we'll be discussing the other part of this equation, the actual driver. All the mechanical excellence in the vehicle still requires a calm, alert pilot at the controls. To get your car winter ready, I'm joined by Chris Buer, my favorite mechanic and professor at Centennial College's automotive program. Welcome to the Driving Podcast, Chris. Thanks. Nice to be here again, as always. Okay, winter. I'm sitting here. It's so hot, I've got fans going. However, we know that that can change in a heartbeat. Um what is your number one thing when people say to you, okay, winter's coming, what do I do? Buy winter tires. It's my number one thing. And you'll always get the the older folks going, no, I made it through without winter tires. Yeah, you might have made it through, but you made it through without a cell phone as well. And it just makes life better having them, right? Cell phone, winter tires, doesn't matter. The winter tires add traction in cold weather, which allows you to stop sooner, turn better. And those are the things that you're going to miss when you're sliding across a sheet of ice in the middle of January. So that's number one. Got to have it. I've had people say, okay, I don't know where to buy them. And it's one of the few, actually, it's not one of the few things. I say, go to the people that know what they're talking about. I like tire shops because they only sell tires for the most part. And you can get some really good information. And I've had people on the program before from various tire outlets. I like that they actually know their stuff and Yes, there's great big places you can buy all of them, but if you go there, you better do your own research. Whereas if you want help, go to the guys that are specialists, correct? That's that's absolutely true. So uh, even myself as, as a mechanic for a number of years, I will still turn to my local tire shop and go, hey guys, what's good this season? Um, what have you seen working? What doesn't work? Right? You can spend a lot of money on something that maybe is not as good as it should be, or You'll go into the trenches, you talk to the guys that fight that battle every day and ask them, hey, what's really good? What's the best tire I can get for the money? Or what's the best tire I can get for my money? I drive to a tire shop, not a word of a lie, 50 minutes from my front door uh, because that's the one that I trust. I've dealt with them for years and they'll get me the right tires every time. And the tire industry is changing rapidly year over year as new, you know, new compounds are discovered and they become very highly targeted to something like our Canadian climate. Let's say I already have tires, though. How do you know if they're still good? So five years uh, is your typical allowance for age on a tire, according to, believe it or not, your insurance. Um, after that five year mark, winter tires start to get pretty hard if they're hard they won't remain supple in the cold weather and you're looking for about half tread life on them i know that 230 seconds is the minimum for a safety but it's not going to have any bite in the snow if the sipes are gone from your winter tire which are the tiny little cracks in the tread blocks if those sipes are gone you're not going to have much traction on ice so you're looking for a pretty meaty tire to actually do the job still we see headlines every year at tire changeover, twice a year, someone has a tire fly. It's deadly, it's dangerous, it's terrifying, and a lot of times it comes down to the lug nuts weren't tightened properly. Now, when you read the fine print, and this is at tire shops, they say you have to come back 
within, I think it's 100 kilometers to get them checked or we're not responsible because it's, it always has to be somebody's fault. How important is that tightening and rechecking? It's super important. I mean, so you've got a whole bunch of different stuff at play. You've got what we call stack tolerances. You've got a rotor sitting on top of a hub and then a wheel sitting on top of that rotor. We can get debris. We can get uh, rust in between the wheel uh, and the rotor and then the rotor and the hub. So this, all this stuff has to be either cleaned off, which if you're at a tire shop, it's probably not getting cleaned off or compressed down so it's not loose anymore. We can tighten a wheel and have that stuff kind of hold the wheel off the hub just a hair. You drive it a little bit, falls out, come back, retorque it. It's never an issue. It's when you don't retorque it and that wheel continues to vibrate or move back and forth against the lug nuts and it starts to wallow at holes make noise the next thing you know you're watching your wheel race your car down the road bad situation the other thing is aluminum rims are softer than the steel that holds them in the steel will compress aluminum particularly new aluminum rims so you want to check the torque on those several times over before you are confident that they're not coming loose so please 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 get your tires done and then get them checked what a week later maybe depending on your driving so my tire shop 50 kilometers or one week 50. Is what they ask. Okay. It's it's a thing. And I know it's a hassle getting them in to get them changed even once, but it's really, really important. And it also means that your tire shop needs to sign off their legal liability by retightening those. So play by the rules, everybody. Up next, something we don't usually talk about, but in the winter, all of a sudden you think about wiper blades and squirter stuff. A lot of people don't change their blades, especially if they lease a car. They've never changed their wiper blades. I do it once or twice a year because I'm really uptight about it. Everything, your vision, everything that you see goes to is the windshield. Now, blades are like tires. They have different formulations. And I don't, do, do you have to get winter blades or just new blades? I just get new blades myself. I am a real sucker for the new beam style wiper blades. They've got no joints in them. They don't freeze up. They're all season. They've got a fairly good formulation. They stay pliable in the winter. And I've swapped them out. Basically, whenever I hit the wipers and it doesn't instantly clear the windshield, ah, it's time for new blades for the, you know, I think it's 50, maybe 100 bucks for a set of good ones. Put them on and you'll see again for six months. It's it's like, it's the difference between looking through frosted glass and not. Right. Is there anything you see people that pop up their wiper blades to stand them up when they know it's going to be an icy night? Does that wreck the blades or the springs? Does it prevent anything except, you know, jabbing your ice scraper against the blades the next morning? Where do you fall on that? Because this discussion goes two ways always. So so there's there's risk and reward to doing that. Um, the reward is you don't have to peel the wiper blade off of a frozen window and risk wrecking that really soft ductile rubber end on it right or jamming your uh, ice scraper into the side of the blade and uh, hurting the blade the downside of that is if that comes down with any type of speed someone slaps it someone uh, or it gets blown over you get a big ball of ice on it and it falls down it can blow the windshield out of your car leaving them up i'd rather put a wiper blade on than a windshield in so i leave them down I'll, I'll let the car sit there and defrost my windshield if I have to. Uh, rust proofing. Um, I'm going to get I'm going to get calls about this. I know I am. I've got one sitting in the driveway that's due to go back in. We only think about it in the fall. The fact is, you can do rust proofing any time of year. But right now, what's critical as we go in? And should you be putting your car through a car wash to get the salt off it? 
let's talk about corrosion. Ooh, corrosion, one of my least favorite things. Um, as far as rust proof goes, don't believe the box. The box is a lie. The little uh, rust proof boxes that they sell you at the dealer for hundreds and hundreds of dollars do not work. In they should be illegal. Opinion. It should be illegal. Yeah. Uh, it should have a hell of an investigation, that's for sure. Uh, I have changed or I've worked on cars where the strut tower is separated and that little box is sitting on the strut tower with the light still blinking on it. So uh, the strut tower did not separate just because of a bad weld. It was rotten out. They don't work. They, long story short, they just don't work. Um, the black tar, the hard wax stuff, doesn't work as well. The rust travels underneath it, and then you get these big chunks of uh, wax or tar dropping off the bottom of your vehicle, and it's severely rusted underneath. The one that I do believe in is under oil. It has uh, anti-corrosive agents suspended in oil. Uh, if you go to the right place, crown, rust check, uh, somebody that you actually trust to spray proper undercoating on the bottom of your car. It suspends these anti-corrosives inside of the oil. The oil leaches into places where you can't get, and it protects the car. It makes the car last a lot longer. When I'm shopping for one of my gems, I'm looking for something that's been undercoated to death, um, or under-oiled to death, I should say. It works. It just, there, there's no two ways about it. The nuts and bolts come apart on cars that are 30 years old that have been under oiled. They just work. That is about undercoating. I think we should do a whole session on, on rust proofing and undercoating because it's like a really big topic. So I'm glad you touched on it today, but I'm going to circle back to this another time and get you back on the, get you back. I'm on all this. about it. I, I don't know why people hate it or they love it. Um, I know a lot of mechanics that hate it when they're working on cars because it is messy. It's drippy. It's sloppy. But like I said, everything just comes off. You look at the bottom of the car and it's, Oh my God, it's got rockers and floors in it still. So that must say something to it. This time of year, especially, I tell people if you don't have CAA or roadside assistance to go and get it, um, there can be so many unknowns when the weather changes in the middle of the day. We've all seen that. You go off in the morning. It's one way. You come back at night. It's totally changed. I've heard you shouldn't be boosting batteries on your own or from car to car. Our cars are so – all the electronics in them are very, very expensive. I think you should call someone to help you. I know you know how to get yourself out of trouble. I like those battery boosters that you can buy, those blocks. You can charge your phone. You can charge everything. Are, are they safe to use to boost your own battery? Should you carry jumper cables? Should you help somebody else? What's, what's the best way to handle a car that won't start? So the jumper boxes, awesome idea. And believe it or not, I went to Canadian Tire. I bought their kind of top-of-the-line MotoMaster one to use in my shop. They work flawlessly, and they have polarity sensitivity, so you can't hook them up backwards. Jumper cables are not idiot-proof, and I've done it myself where I'm like, oh, I'm just going to hook this. Uh-oh, which, which terminal's which, right? Both cables are black. Oh, my God, i got to find where the little positive sign is on the battery. Middle of January at 9 p.m., you're not looking quite correctly for the positive part of the battery. You're freezing your butt off, and you want to go home. The jump box is going to get you going in a relatively safe manner for a modern car. And you're right to touch on the uh, electronics. There's like uh, dozens, if not hundreds of computers on these cars. Running uh, power through them in a reverse manner, hooking up the battery cables wrong, can pop several, if not all of the computers all at once. 
and you're into thousands and thousands of dollars to get it replaced or repaired or an insurance claim and it's just not worth it and you touched on a perfect thing with CAA CAA or more affordably the Canadian Tire Auto Club is what I have they'll come out they'll boost your car they'll bring you some gasoline if you run out they'll tow you if you need the tow just having that in your back pocket for a hundred dollars a year or thereabouts man you'd be almost crazy to drive without it again i'm a mechanic i can fix my way out of most things i got a traveling tool set that i throw in the back of the truck but i still carry in my wallet a valid automotive club card of some type to get me out of a jam and i think that's when we talk about boosting cars there's frequently someone who's very kind and very helpful and you're in a parking lot and you're going oh i you know I don't believe I'm stuck with this. They come running over. I got it. No problem. No problem. You have a very expensive vehicle. You're about to turn over to somebody who, while intensely kind, may not always know what they're doing. And again, if it's dark and if they make a mistake, you're paying for it and it could be incredibly expensive. So if I have that card in my wallet, I can say, I really appreciate your help. Thank you so much. But I've got help on the way. And so just be really cautious about boosting somebody else you might wreck their car or allowing someone to help you out it takes away the whole question if you've already got a system in place to help you out and i know that sounds mean in today's you know world that we have to say no to help but you can be polite about it right yeah no you're absolutely right i mean think of the way you'd feel if you've just put someone in a worse situation or uh on top of that if all of a sudden you get served with a paper that says oh look you tried to help but you've caused fifty or sixty thousand dollars worth of computer damage to a vehicle, right? Um, it's not worth the risk to be that good Samaritan, as much as it sucks. And it, it sucks even worse if you've got a dead battery. You're probably in a situation where you couldn't afford the battery in the first place. Now you've got thousands or tens of thousands of dollars worth of computer problems. That's a figure. If you want to help, you can stay with someone in case they feel isolated or they're afraid until the tow gets there. And you can say, I'm just sitting here in my car, you know, don't worry, because if someone feels vulnerable, you can still be helpful, even if you're not going to put cables onto their car. The other nice thing about carrying one of those auto, auto club cards, if you're standing beside that person in the parking lot, and you really want to help them out, you want to give them the boost, call the auto club. It's not the car that they cover. It's the driver. If you're there, you can help someone out with your own card. That's an excellent point. I did know that and I forgot it and I'm glad you reminded us. So yes, you can help other people in other ways, which is terrific. One last topic before we have to go. EVs. People are buying more of them. Is there any special winter things we need to know about EVs? We know we get a little bit reduced mileage. People that own them already know this. It's not you know a new thing. But getting them ready for winter, is there anything different than our traditional cars? So I bought two of them. I have one and my wife now has one. Uh, they're absolutely splendid little units to drive. As far as getting them ready for winter, winter tires, again, are a big must on the car. It is going to reduce range. Otherwise, they are fairly maintenance-free vehicles. The nice thing is most of them have a lot of features. You can get them ready to go or condition them before you unplug them from the house. So I sit inside, I'm getting ready for work, and I'll hit the remote start button, which is humorous. It doesn't start. It just starts warming up the cabin and pulls power from the house in order to uh, warm up the batteries and everything else so I can improve my range driving the car in cold weather. That's that's probably your biggest thing is winter tires. You're going to lose some range. I go from about 
400 kilometers of range to 325, 350, depending on the weather outside and the drag of the tires uh, in the wintertime. Um, but I hop into a nice warm car, the heated seats are on, the heated steering wheels on, batteries conditioned, so I'm going to get optimal range, all that kind of good stuff. That's actually a great tip. I didn't know that. Thank you, Chris Muir. We're going to take a short break on the driving podcast. When we return, I'll be joined by Carl Nodeau, Michelin's professional driver and driving instructor. Now your ride is winter ready. Let's make sure the driver is ready for anything as well. I'm your host, Lorraine Sommerfeld. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Driving Podcast. I'm your host, Lorraine Sommerfeld. I'm joined now by Carl Nadeau. He's a professional race car driver, and he's the spokesman for Michelin as their expert instructor. Even if your vehicle is all prepped and ready to go, we need you, the driver, to be ready as well. Carl, welcome to the Driving Podcast. Hello. Great to have you here. I have lots of questions for you. We're going to have the first snowfall soon, and it's going to be a great big surprise for almost everybody on the road. We watch the news, the first snowfall of the season across the country, it's always the same train wreck. You just see crashes and fender benders everywhere. If you could talk to people now before that is happening, what would you tell them that initial day when everything's a surprise? It's funny how every year we get the same surprise. And one of the reasons is like our tires they lose flexibility and they lose performance as the weather gets close to zero degrees Celsius or freezing point. So that means your tires are basically turning into a hockey puck. So add the first snowfall, the lack of experience, the fact that we've been driving on, on basically warm summer roads and it turns to winter, it's usually a really bad mix. Some people don't realize now that even when you see a little fender bender and there's not a lot of damage, you think, because of all the sensors and cameras on modern cars, the damage can be extraordinary. So even if it just looks like you glanced off somebody, you're looking at a lot of damage and you really want to make sure you're not coming in contact with another vehicle. Winter tires, my mechanic at the top of the hour, Chris Muir, first thing out of his mouth, first thing out of your mouth, they really make a huge difference and they will save you money if you never come in contact with another thing on the road. So please everyone invest in them. Yeah. And there's always a problem with, uh, with uh, people driving a SUV that are usually all wheel drive. It gives you a sense that basically you get tons of traction and life is good, but yes, an SUV all wheel drive can, can actually accelerate pretty good. Even if you have the bad tires and there's snow on the ground, but they're usually heavier, so they're going to take way longer to stop, and it's going to be really hard to corner with a car that doesn't have the appropriate tire. So basically, you leave home, you think everything's fine, until you have to slow down. You're beating me to my next question, which is brilliant. I want to talk about braking on wet roads and icy roads. What should people? How far should they be looking down the road? What should they be anticipating? Because braking is different in winter than it is on dry roads. So what, what do you tell your students? Uh, basically, first of all, is to look far ahead. Never look right in front of your car. And a lot of people tell me, well, there's hole in the asphalt, so I need to navigate through it. But if you look further down the road, you're going to see everything way before. So you're, you're, you won't have to react at the last second. Uh, and, and basically, I always tell people, if you have to slow down abruptly, hit the brake hard, make sure you do it in straight line and stay relaxed. Because 
a lot of people under braking, they kind of lock their arms. And if if you do that, unfortunately, you're going to throw the car left and right under braking. So it can lead to losing control and spinning the car. So that's exactly what you want to avoid. So keep your hands, shoulder, neck, super relaxed when you drive, especially in an emergency situation. A lot of times you see people in trouble on off-ramps. The ramps of the highways, they have more snow on them. They tend to get icier and stay icier longer. So people will be going down the highway and everything is, you know, not bad. And then as soon as they hit that ramp, they get in trouble because they're also turning. There's a slight turn. What do you tell people for taking ramps? Yeah, that, that's a great point because a, a lot of time people slow down when they're in the ramp. So they're combining the fact that the grip level of the road is changing and they're trying to slow down and turn at the same time. And it's really a bad recipe. It's a recipe for disaster. So make sure you slow down when you're driving straight before the ramp. And if you look far ahead in front of you, you're going to see the, a, a difference. Basically, if it's icy, there's going to be reflection on the road. You're going to see that there's something different that catches your eye. So instead of overanalyzing everything and drive at the same speed, it's time to slow down. If it feels weird, if it looks weird, it's probably bad. So slow down before. It's probably bad. I think we should call this segment that. That's the title. <laughs> it's probably bad. <laughs> I I think a lot of people. I I when I was when my kids were younger and they were learning how to drive, I had to. I taught them that yes, you have a brake to slow down, but you also have the removal of throttle. Like just not being on the gas will start you slowing down. And it sounds like such an obvious thing, but we've got a lot of people on the roads that it's all brake or all gas, like it's one or the other. And they don't kind of entertain that in-between part where you have full control of your steering while gravity takes its, you know, goes the right route and will slow the car down. So I think sudden moves, when you mentioned looking further down the road as far as you can, will tell you so much information. And that's what you're feeding into your brain the whole time you're driving is pieces of information. Yeah. Uh, by the way, part of it is because of a bad driving position. Uh, a lot of people, they're way too far from, uh, from the, the steering wheel and the pedal. So when you sit in a car, first thing you should do is move the seat forward enough. So under extremely heavy braking, your leg is supposed to never be fully extended. After that, you just move the seat up. So in perfect driving position, meaning the hands at nine and three, your elbow should have like a 45 degree angle. And people should always drive with the two hands on the steering wheel. And when I look, because basically when you're a coach, you kind of overanalyze everybody else's driving. So when people have one hand on the wheel, usually you see them wave left and right and left and right. So if you add emergency they're already basically at the limit of losing control all the time and make sure your shoulders are always rested on the seat because if you basically when the shoulders are not on the seat you lose all possible precision because your weight lies on the steering wheel instead of on the seat i think you bring up a really good point when you talk about people with one hand on the wheel and maybe not knowing what the dead pedal is for to brace themselves we take driving very casually in too many places. And when you just said, and then add in an emergency, and that's the recipe right there for, like you said earlier, a disaster. 
it's not a casual thing. Driving requires all of your attention all the time, especially under these, you know, under terrible conditions that are maybe changing. I I had a woman ask me um, about traction control and she said, oh, a friend of her, she goes, I get so tired using it. I said, what are you talking about? And she goes, so someone said to me, you take it on and off and on and off as you're driving. And I said, no, you only take it off to get out of a snowbank. And I was a little bit confused. Anyway, could you describe traction control and stability control? We have them in our cars. A lot of people don't know what they do. Actually, I'm in shock because of what you just said. Like, it, it's, it's scary how people give advices without knowing what it is. It's really scary. Uh, first of all, there's two different things. There's traction control and stability control. Traction control, basically, if your wheels are straight and it's really slippery, traction control, make sure that the wheels are not spinning when you try to accelerate. So, yes, you can deactivate it uh, to get out of the snow bank because a lot of times, unfortunately, traction control is kind of over-intrusive. So it, it cuts the power of the engine and it uses the brakes also to slow down the wheel. So in some cars, like my girlfriend has a Prius, and sometimes if it's kind of stuck in a snowbank, all you have is flashing light in the dashboard and the car doesn't move. So when you can, you can deactivate the traction control and you can gently rock the car forward and back and forward and back without spinning the wheels because you don't want to create a nice patch on, under the car. But by shutting off basically traction control, you can actually do that. But once you get out of the snowbank, you should just put it back on. And there's also stability control. In modern cars, most of the time, you cannot deactivate it, but on some or your car, you can. But stability control, make sure that if you do mistake, there's a safety net that will help you basically stay in control. So, of course, professional driver on a racetrack in perfect condition, we deactivate everything because we can usually do a better job than the system. But for an average driver, if that safety net exists, might as well use it. I think sometimes we overdrive our abilities because we have cars that are designed to save us. And the more safety systems that come into the cars, that's excellent. But I find driver skill tends to decline along with it. And the two things you just described, stability and traction control, that's something we take for granted now. It's been mandatory. We don't even think about it until we set it off. And even then, we don't think about it. I wanted to ask you, um, black ice, sleet, like just wet pavement, lots of snow, we all uh, lots of snow is very obvious. What are some ways that you can detect that you're coming into some dangerous situations that might not look so dangerous at the onset? There, there's just a few ways you can do it. Like, first of all, by looking far ahead in front of the car, uh, usually there's a little change in lighting, the, the way light reflects on the asphalt. So if you look in front of your car, it, it feels that you have perfect grip. And then in front of you, it looks different. You don't know why, but it looks different. I would basically start to slow down before hitting that section. And there's also, when you're driving, if there's nobody behind you, it's, it's safe, and you feel something is wrong, you can gently apply the brakes to basically brake test. And if you feel a pulse in your braking pedal, that means you're really on black ice. So let go the brakes 
steer straight, stay relaxed, and basically the, let the, the, the car decelerate very gently. And then, of course, drive slower, because if there's black ice here, in two minutes there might be black ice again. So just drive slow and adapt your speed to the, the, the road conditions. Okay. Now, if I'm driving along and I start to fishtail a little, how do you recover from a skid? How do you recover when you're back in? Let's, let's go. That's the scary part. And that's something that should be taught in, in control condition uh, to make sure people react right. And you have to kind of build muscle memory. So it's very, very hard to give advice and make sure that people will follow the advice if they never tried it before. So first of all, I would strongly suggest people taking a defensive driving class or at least in a safe, uh, empty parking lot when it's really slippery and, and you have permission to do it there. Just try to hit the brake really hard in straight line and feel the ABS pedal, the ABS pulse. Uh, try to like turn a little bit when you brake to, to feel the back end slide and basically develop those reflexes. You always look in front of you and basically look where you want to go. And that's something like in, in, in backcountry roads where it's all beautiful. If there's one single post on the road, there's always a car wrapped around it. So why? <laughs> there's like kilometers of, of snow banks. There's one post and people are stuck in it. It's because when you panic, you just look at what's dangerous. And therefore, you're pointing your car to that direction. It's like hunting, but you're hunting for car damage and possible accidents. <laughs> very well put and actually very true when you think about it. That's, that's where everything ends up. Um, I had a, a, a policeman tell me once, um, I said, how come the big SUVs, which you mentioned earlier, they always go blasting past everybody in really bad conditions? And he goes, oh, yeah, we watched that. He goes, they're the first ones in the ditch, always. And, and I said, what, what do you – well, I said, what do you say to them? And he goes, we get there. And they, every single one is absolutely – they can't believe they're in a ditch. But you, you mentioned the weight of these vehicles, the fact they break the same as anybody else, even though they've got tires and all-wheel drive, but that center of gravity and the overconfidence is doing that, I think. But, yeah, they're going to find that pole. Um, I – wanted to ask you one other thing um you mentioned your the prius your girlfriend's prius are electric vehicles any different in conditions are there anything about oh yes yeah, that we're discovering for sure uh, one of the big differences is the weight because whether we like it or not the batteries are pretty heavy in an electric car so they're they're usually heavier than most similar cars on the road that have internal combustion engine so when you have to slow down, physics wins all the time. The heavier it is, the longer it's going to take to slow down. So in an electric car, I would be double careful to make sure I leave enough distance with the car in front of me uh, to make sure I have uh, basically enough distance to, to slow down. And it's the same with cornering. With, uh, with some electric cars, uh, you have uh, different regen modes on the cars. And there's always a regen mode that is super aggressive. So when you lift abruptly the, the, the gas pedal, the accelerator, uh, it, it slows down really quickly because it recharges the battery uh, pretty fast. The problem is if you're in the corner and you, you let go the accelerator quickly, 
that can lead into an unsafe deceleration, and you can either lose control of the front or the back of the vehicle. So slowing down in the corner is never a good idea, but with an electric car with a high G region mode, it can be even worse. So again, reason to get used to your car before you're actually caught in that moment. One last thing, Highway 400 going up to Barry, not far from where I am, whiteouts have been happening every few years. To me, this is the scariest winter event because whiteouts literally come out of nowhere. What do you do? I don't know what to tell people what to do. What do you do when all of a sudden you can't see on a busy highway? That is scary. And there's, there's absolutely no magic solution because whatever the choice you make, there's still going to be danger involved, but we want to reduce that danger. One of the things I, I always realize, uh, the, uh, the, the, the hazard light on the car, uh, the, the four flasher, most people, if they sit in the car and you tell them they're in the driveway, on park, everything's safe, you tell them, close your eyes and hit the hazard lights. Most people will have to open their eye, look for it inside the car to finally find it. If you're in a whiteout, it's super dangerous. There's basically almost no visibility, and you have to leave the road and look inside the dashboard to find that hazard light. It's scary because your car is still traveling. So basically, that's something everybody right now, you should go sit in your car, look where the hazard light is, and hit it. So in in a whiteout, that's my first reflex. I look at the road both hands on the wheel, I leave one hand, hit the hazard light, because if I can't see in front of me, people behind me can't see either. So at least I give them an idea with those lights. And I would really gradually slow down. I wouldn't ever, never ever hit the brake hard in the whiteout, because again, the guy behind you cannot see you. So you have to very, very gradually slow down. And of course, you drive in straight line. Don't don't try to stop on the side of the road or change direction. You have to drive straight, straight, straight as much as you can to get out of that situation. Great advice for a very scary situation. That's, like I said, the one that scares me. <laughs> Carl Nadeau, you've been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. You can subscribe to The Driving Podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. Check out driving.ca website for past and future episodes. For the Driving Podcast, I'm Lorraine Sommerfeld. Mm-hmm.